For me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion. My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's sustainability editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis. I just think it's curiosity at the core of it. Like, I just really want to know the answer to things. You talk about revolution in 68. No, we make the revolution before. Can we just go back to making really beautiful clothes with a soul and minimize the waste and think a little before we, we make things and bring back the value? Provided you wake up every morning and you're aware of the fact that your wardrobe is in the fashion supply chain, then you're a fashion decision maker. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. Hello everybody, how are you doing? What have you been up to? I've been vintage shopping. Do you know, if I had to tell you what I've been doing in any given week, I could say that with accuracy. (laughs) It's a problem. But are you into vintage shopping or a secondhand style? Or have you ever bought something that has been pre-loved or pre-owned? Of course you have, because it's totally normal. I mean, things are really changing. According to ThreadUp, the line between new and used apparel is blurring for customers anyway. And I've been loving telling everyone that resale is expected to eclipse fast fashion within the decade. That's another one from ThreadUp. But I think we're seeing it across the board, a growing realisation that it's more sustainable to use things that are already in existence. And also, God, I mean, there's enough stuff out there, right? I often say you could pretty much buy anything you could ever dream of secondhand. But the story of our stuff And yes, our overstuffed lives goes way beyond fashion and a bit of snagging a vintage bargain, right? It's about what happens to our stuff when we're done with it. The clothes, sure, but also everything. I mean, look around you. The books, the kitchen stuff, the furniture, the knickknacks, the, I don't know, spare toasters and pens and you name it. The spoils of our consumerism. Where does it all go? when we're done with it, when we throw it in the bin, because we know there's no way, right? But also when we donate it to a charity shop or when we die. I know, sorry. It's actually something I have thought about because I collect fashion books and I've been collecting them for about 20 years and I've poured like quite a lot of energy as well as money into getting all these wonderful old books and they're piled up around my house. But sometimes I think no one cares about them except me. What would happen if I were no longer here? Who would have to then take responsibility and lug them somewhere and where? And would they have any value? Now, I know that's a bit maudlin, but my guest this week, Adam Minter, has been thinking about that too. He has been writing about recycling since the early 2000s. Six years ago, he wrote a book that I love called Junkyard Planet. I actually reference it in Rise and Resist. And when I heard he has a new one coming out, I jumped on it. I was like, a few months ago, I'm getting Adam Minter on this show. So I've been saving up this interview until the book comes out. It's out now. And it's called Secondhand, Travels in the New Global Garage Sale. It begins after his mother dies, with him and his sister trying to figure out what to do with all her stuff. Now, Adam's actually a business journalist with Bloomberg. He's based in Malaysia. But with his books, he writes these really evocative narrative nonfiction. It's storytelling through real life characters and interviews. And it's absolutely my kind of thing. 
You're going to hear some shocking stories, but also some creative solutions. I ask him what he learned from meeting all these people all over the world, engaged in the business of dealing with our glut of stuff. And I also asked him some thorny questions about recycling that I've always wanted to get answered, like, are we able to mine landfill? And are we running out of landfill? And oh, just stuff you want to know. You should DM me if you have other questions. I have a hotline to Adam Minter and I could probably get him to answer them. (laughs) How are you finding the show anyway? It's nearly December. Can you believe it? We've only got two more episodes after this one in series three. But never fear, I'm already working on series four for next year. It's so great. I've got some amazing interviews lined up. I can't wait to share them. Also, I don't even want to go on holiday. It's just my favourite part of the week, spending this time with you, dear listener. If you like what we do here, please do rate and review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And keep those shares coming on social media. It really helps other people find us. I'm on Instagram and Twitter, at Mrs Press. And there's also a Wardrobe Crisis page on Facebook. All right, you ready for Adam? I tell you, Marie Condos, this is going to really shake up the way you think about decluttering. Welcome, Adam Minter. So happy to have you on the podcast. I'm excited to finally be here. This is like one of my favourite subjects, thrifting, garage sales, secondhand economy, and where our stuff goes when we're done with it. Yeah, well, it's one of my favourite subjects as well. (laughs) I know this. I thought we're going to start this interview in a bit of a novel way. So I'm going to read you five mind-boggling facts that I learned from your new book, Secondhand Travels in the New Global Garage Sale. And then I'm going to ask you to comment on them. But before we do that, do you want to just give us like a quick summary? What is this book all about? So this book starts from your home and the excess stuff that we all have that we wonder about where it will go when we don't want it anymore. And I basically follow it out into the world and around the world from Tokyo vintage markets to uh, thrift shops in the American Southwest to uh, massive textile markets and used goods markets in West Africa. And the conclusions are somewhat disturbing. We all have far too much stuff, not only that we can use, but that anybody else can use. But it's also hopeful because there is demand there and there is change happening and there are prescriptions out there that can maybe make a dent in some of this. In the course of writing this book, I came across a woman who sorts stuff for people as they downsize and declutter their homes. And she said to me, when I brought up the topic of hoarding and the American television show Hoarder, she said, well, she says, you know, I don't really think there's any such thing as hoarders per se. She says, we're all hoarders and it's a spectrum disorder. I it's read where that we, when, oh God, I'm on it. Yeah. But it's where? Just, where? Where do you land on it? You know, theoretically, you know, sort of these Japanese minimalists that we all read about, they're probably on one end. And then the people that you see in the hoarders program are at the other end. And, and of course, you know, we all would like to think we're more towards the minimalist side than the hoarder side. But depending on the day, it can probably change. Okay. I'm going to share these five startling things I learned from your book and then ask you to unpack them. Are you okay, ready? Okay, I'm ready. Number one is, as of 2017, there were 54,000 mini storage sites at least in the US. And that is enough rentable space to cover the whole of Palm Springs and the industry's annual profits. So all of these little mini storage businesses are triple those of Hollywood. Yeah. Whoa. 
woe is right. And the other fact, the other data point that astounded me is I learned about the American mini storage industry is that in many communities, the price you pay for rent in a mini storage per square foot is more than you would pay for your own home. And so that tells you that there's something has gone seriously askew, at least in certain American communities, people simply have too much stuff. If it's reached the point where you're paying more rent to store your stuff than to store yourself, it's time to start decluttering. I just It's actually ridiculous, isn't it? Houses routinely come with these walk-in wardrobes in the States. Right. And it's not just clothing. I mean, of course, we're talking about wardrobe crisis, but one of the things I found as I was going into American homes that they're cleaned out is the amount of sort of repetitive items. My favorite one, in a sense, is broken vacuum cleaners. And they Um, just keep them just in case. They just keep them because I think they, you know, you buy one, it breaks. And especially for older generations, I think they have memories of when they, there used to be a vacuum cleaner repair person up the street that doesn't happen anymore because they're so cheap we've all been through this it happened at my house with our washing machine we took it once to the repairman who mm-hmm. then actually did repair it mm-hmm. and then it broke again and then he said you know what it's not worth it yeah these things are not designed to be fixed right and not only that new ones are so cheap and yet a point of hope the repair cafe culture is spreading yeah. Isn't that fun? I mean, people clearly want to re-engage with their stuff. And that's where I say I'm optimistic. You know, you can say, well, there's all this cheap stuff. Why don't you just throw another vacuum cleaner down the stairs into the basement? But people don't want to do it. There is this growing sense that we should be doing something more with this. We should be fixing it. And, and there is something alienating about a consumer culture where you can't open up things and, and, oh, and sort of make them your own. Well, and, electronics are designed for us not to be able to mess around with them. Right. They're absolutely designed that way. And it's ridiculous. And yet clothes are absolutely not designed that way. And if we were to rekindle those age-old, if you like, skills that our grandmothers had Mm -hmm. or our, why do we have to feminize that? Yuck. That our elders had and they should be men and women, please. It should be gender-free. But if we could just reconnect with those skills, we could keep our items for longer. We know that. And I think we would not only keep our items for longer, but I think we would be buying better items. I mean, that's to me one of the more interesting things that sort of came to me as I was writing this book is if you spend money on something, you want to repair it. And if you can repair something, you actually want to spend more money on it. You want to buy a better one. Value sort of encourages the pursuit of more value. And that's a good thing. That reminds me of a passage that I marked in your book, and I'm just going to share it. In the United States and in Europe, most secondhand goods are donated rather than sold. As a result, people lack a financial incentive to take care of their things. Right, exactly. And that really came to me by spending time in thrift stores in Japan, and in particular, a chain called Book Off, which is the second largest thrift chain in Japan. And when they started out in the early 90s, they were strictly focused on books. And people would bring them their books. They used to maybe bring them to used bookstores, which were sort of dank, you know, very unpleasant places. And book offs would say, bring us your books. And they would bring them books that were not in particularly good condition. But as book off expanded, people began to realize that if you bring them good books, you get paid more. And in the early days, book off actually had a machine that would clean up the books. It would shave the, the browned and yellowed edges. After a period of time, they threw away the machines. They didn't need them anymore because people, they sort of trained and nudged people into bringing them better stuff. This was actually mind-boggling fact number four Mm. (laughs) which is that this company you visit book off yeah this killed me as a writer they told you that 35 
thousand tons of books were sent to paper recyclers every year from them and I was like well how much is that how can we imagine that weight and you told us it's 3.5 times the weight of the Eiffel Tower and then you wrote measured out in individual unwanted volumes and then you listed some of those genres romance oh god non-fiction you and I are up shit creek mate mm-hmm. but you know what's a lot of this is disposable literature like if you go to Japan don't use that phrase eek but it is <laughs> I like know? the comics yeah, the, the comics, manga, you know. And if you go into the Book Off Warehouse and you just see boxes of these comics, this manga that was bought for one shot, nobody's going to buy it again. So it gets sent to the pulper. Fast reading, like fast fashion, fast yeah. books. It's fast fashion or, or you know, there's so much talk now about uh, single-use plastics, you know, and uh, plastic bags. I think of it as single-use literature. It's it's essentially the plastic bag of literature. Okay, but why I pulled that out for mind-boggling was not just the weight of 3.5 Eiffel Towers. It was because you tell this horrible story about receiving an old novel, a charismatic-looking old novel, like 30 years old or something, no barcode on it, therefore not efficient for them to yeah, actually keep right. that. And so they dump it straight into the recycling pile. Well, when you're as big as a company like Book Off is, and it's huge, it's all about volume, volume of volumes. Mm. And that was a really shocking moment for me. So it was the spokesperson for Book Off, the main spokesperson, and he took me into this warehouse, and there was this giant bin of books that were going to the pulping mill. And he saw this volume and he pulled it out lovingly. This was a book that he clearly had some emotional connection to. And he looked at it and he turned it over and, and, and he was looking for the barcode. And there was no barcode. So it's just, you know, if you want to find out what this book is and whether it can sell because Book Off keeps a database of what's moving through its stores and it's constantly updating with prices. No book barcode, no way of finding out what it's worth. It's not worth going on Amazon to look it up. See ya. But then that speaks to this idea that we devalue the valuable in the name of efficiency and it it really made me stop that because it reminded me of going out to the sorting areas of salvos in Sydney. Sure. uh, When I went to touch the sorters there and do some sorting myself and see how it was all done. And actually grim like one of the grimmest things about that was that my hands were all itchy I had itchy arms and I said oh is it because it's dirty and because they wear gloves and they said it's not the dirt it's the chemicals from the cheap new clothes right nice but it wasn't the story I want to tell you is um out the back of one of these sorting places they had all this really good vintage and I can remember really clearly like it's a couple of years ago a really good sort of 1940s woolen dress really nice but a bit mothbally and wonderful quality and if you had a vintage store you would have leapt on that and I said but this is amazing why don't you want this and she said oh no can't have that smells we can't have the shop smelling and that's all old and I said but what do you do with them and she said we put them in there and they go to landfill but her job was to find the most saleable items that would make the shop thrive and for her market which was in a kind of suburb where it's not a real vintage market people would have thought that was grotty and old and yuck and they wanted it to look new and so she was saving really bad quality new things with the tax still on over this wonderful vintage and then the other side of it when I raised it with the managers they were like yeah but we don't have the resources to clean it we don't have the education to teach sorters about what vintage is valuable so this is just the system 
them and it's quite hard to imagine another way. A lot of these sorters are volunteers. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the constant tension, even in the secondhand industry, which we think is implicitly sustainable. It is, but it's just sort of like the hoarding spectrum. You know, you have sort of the sustainability spectrum. At some point, you need to pay the rent. And if what pays the rent is letting certain valuable things go, that's what's going to happen. But as as a vintage obsessive thrifting fan, to me, that was so sad, thinking what on earth has gone into those landfill bins. You know, there was was a recent story, and I believe it was on BBC, about a business in Kenya. And what it does is extraordinary. And it's an insight really into the vintage market globally. So it was an African man from Kenya who lived in France. Uh, He had gone back to Kenya and was seeing the secondhand clothes coming into Kenya. And he was seeing vintage that would not sell in Kenya, but would be very high value back in France. So he was re-exporting the vintage back into France that he was pulling out of these bales of clothes in Kenya. It's a brilliant, brilliant business. But it speaks to how difficult and how expensive it is and the expertises that are involved in pulling the stuff out. But it's also about the fact that there'll always be some experts that are able to make money yeah. out of demand if they can figure out where that demand lies. Right. I mean, one thing I found about the secondhand market throughout the world is there's usually somebody who wants the stuff. There's always somebody who's going to, you know, even that thing that nobody wants, there's going to be some market for it. But that's the trick of it, is how do you connect that buyer and seller? You're getting some better connections now because of the internet at the top end of the market, the posh marks, you know, the let goes, the offer ups. I've never again, heard of let go or offer up. Are they American? Yeah, offer up and let go are, are American, you know, trading platforms. They're not just uh, fashion oriented. Poshmark is very much a fashion oriented one. But all of these, to a certain extent, I always think of them as selling the frosting you know it's the higher value stuff and not the not the cake all right i'm back to my um five mind-boggling things so the third one which was number two senior move manager is a 21st century job and it doesn't refer to how experienced the move manager is what on earth (laughs) a senior move manager uh is a job description what it does is it describes somebody who helps a senior citizen move from their home to smaller quarters usually in a retirement community but just okay listeners take a moment because it's about older people not having family close to them to help them it's about social problems as well as job opportunities. It's about obviously the amount of clutter that we accrue that we didn't used to accrue in previous generations. It's a nightmare. It's a nightmare and it's a huge industry. There is an association of senior move managers in the United States with over 600 companies. And this is an industry that's only about 25 years old. And well, it's I've never expand. heard of it. Yeah, and it's going to expand quickly. And there's, you know, I write about it in the book. There's an offshoot of it in Japan. It's not even an offshoot. They have their own version. Same sorts of social problems with a few of their own. I'm sure you can find it in Europe if it doesn't have a trade association. There's permutations of it, but senior move manager. And there are real skills involved. You're not just somebody who cleans out the clutter, but you need to sit there and actually counsel people and say, look, it's time to let go of that wedding china. You never you never used it in the first place. It doesn't belong in your new home because you don't have room for it. Adam, you started writing this book thinking about what you're going to do with your mother's possessions when she'd passed away. Yeah. This is something that comes to everyone at some point, right? Right. I think of it as kind of, there's the modern grieving process. There's two stages to it now. I think 100 years ago, people would grieve 
for the loss of the relative. But there's a second one that almost precedes that grieving, and that is the need to grieve over letting go of their things because so much of who we are is wrapped up in our stuff. And clothing, of course, is the most personal thing in, in many respects. You know, that sweater your mother might have worn when she met your father. You know, it can be something as obvious as a wedding dress or something else, but letting go of things, the wedding china, that sweater... It's a very, very personal thing, and there's a lot of grieving that goes with that letting go process. And and the origins of this book was me and my sister having to let go of our mother's things, these things that were valuable to her but aren't valuable to us. And it was a real... It was a real coming to terms for me, not just with my mother, but with myself, when you realize that these things that you value so much really aren't of value to anybody but yourself. It's really emotional. I remember when my grandmother passed away and she was like my best person. I loved her, even though she was a pain. (laughs) I just loved her, but she was a handful. She was very defined by her stuff and very fascinated. She's probably where I got my fashion obsession from. And... It was like this kind of quite heartbreaking thing, but then some of it quite celebratory, actually, to keep some of those things. And I'm thinking about mum and I actually went through a bag of her ridiculous amounts. Like she was on the spectrum of, she would have thought she was curating, actually. (laughs) She was certainly hoarding. So costume pearls and crazy amounts of them. But then we did laugh our heads off actually wearing them all at once. I've got a picture of me wearing them all at once, head to toe, like a Christmas tree. She had a lot of costume pearls. Right. That's a a funny moment you can share with someone you love about someone you love who's gone. But the other side of this is actually really upsetting, isn't it? Objects can remind us of people who aren't here in a way that, you know, I bet people are crying now. Yeah. Well, I I had a moment that I'll never forget. There were a lot of emotionally jarring moments. But I was in Kamakura, Japan, which is like a holiday community really south of Tokyo. And I was in a woman's house and she started opening a wardrobe and going through drawers. And in that wardrobe were handmade kimonos made by her grandmother. And, you know, I thought, oh, there's three of them or four of them. And she just kept opening drawers and chambers, and she, and she was showing these kimonos to me, and she was tearing up. And then she said, and I write about this in the book, she says, you know, grandmother makes these and a, a daughter wears them, and not so easy to give up. And she started tearing up on me, and of course I started tearing up because we both knew she's going to let go of them. And she said, I don't have room, and she has a family of her own. It becomes actually a really deep thing where we have to try to reconcile our own memories and the way that we regard a person without having that physical presence of them. And I think that's work people have to do when they go through these experiences. Yeah, well, and there's a primal side to this almost. I mean, people really want to know their stuff is wanted because your grandmother's kimonos, I don't know what it is to be Japanese, but I could see on her face and in the tears just how jarring that was and how upsetting. And she, you know, I told her, and I thought she would reject it, but I said, I had just been in Harajuku. I said, you know, they're selling them there. And I said to her, but it's all foreigners buying them. And I thought she wouldn't like that. And she said to me, good, somebody wants them. Let them use them. And that was what was important to her. And I heard that in various forms and ways throughout this process of researching this book. People really want to know that the stuff that they cared about, somebody else will care about. At some point, everybody's going to end up downsizing or disposing of or decluttering a relative's or a friend's stuff. And that's not initially about sustainability at all. And it ends up being, if you go through it, and everybody does, it ends up being psychologically difficult, spiritually difficult, emotionally difficult, physically difficult. 
And in the end, you can say this is a story about sustainability, but it impacts you in all of these other facets of your life. There's also this weight of responsibility. Yeah. Can I ask you what you kept? You know, a little bit of jewelry. I did keep some of her elementary school work, you know, drawings she made. And I'm very aware that in a generation that stuff probably won't matter to anybody, but it mattered to me. She liked to cook and bake, so a few of those things that she loved to cook and bake with. But in the end, not very much, you know. And then we had a couple pictures that she kept on the wall. There was an oil painting that she loved, and so... I've got one that Jean painted, there you go. They're not very good, yeah. but it's good for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you also... It's funny what you choose. Yeah. they're sentimentally of value to you rather than valuable in the dollar sense. Yeah, I mean, I think my mother probably, if I told her we're going to keep this and not this, she might say, but that's not the stuff that mattered to me. And again, it comes back to the whole question of it isn't what is valuable to you, it's what is valuable to somebody else. That's what sets the value of our stuff. Less emotional, but also affecting to me, was the way that you write about how tastes have changed and how things that I would highly prize, things like antique furniture, Mm. has just got no value because tastes change and people don't want it. So looking outside of clothes, but to furniture and heirlooms and things Mm -hmm. that were passed down through family members for generations, it then becomes a point where you live in a fancy apartment block that's all glass and you just want something white and minimalist and you don't want that dresser. Right. And so as a result, at least in North America, there is this surplus of brown furniture. That's what the antique dealers call it. And it's this old oak, heavy wooden furniture. It's beautiful, handmade by carpenters, but the demand just isn't there anymore. And so pieces that at one time would have been viewed as a store of value by a family, that a family that wouldn't have moved very much, now you can buy them for the equivalent of $200, a giant That makes me angry. There's a line in your book. This is what a guy who is an antiques and collectibles trader told you. We cleared Michigan's forest to make that stuff. And then he also said, nobody wants a drop front desk anymore because it can't hold a computer. Right. So here's the optimistic side of that story. And, And it floored me. I live in Malaysia above a mall, basically, that holds a giant flea market every weekend. And I go down there all the time. And one weekend I was talking to a woman there who's an antique dealer, and she had some brown furniture. And I assumed that she had been pulling it out of homes in Kuala Lumpur. And I asked her where she got it from. And she says, oh, no, no, no. I import it from the UK because it's very cheap there. And I said, and I describe a little bit of this conversation in the book. And I said, there's demand. She says, people love it here. You know, and that gets to something that we were discussing earlier is there's always somebody who wants the stuff, but it's not going to necessarily be where you think it is. And it's going to be sometimes hard to connect them. Who would guess that there is somebody in Malaysia in the basement floor of the Amcorp Mall during his weekly flea market who would buy up all that stuff in Stillwater, Minnesota? All right. We got two more. Number four. In 2016, secondhand was a $16 billion industry in Japan. We were just talking about kimonos. But this is amazing because that accounts for roughly 4% of Japan's overall retail market. And this is a fashion capital. They are fashiony people. And yet, there's 20 million used clothing customers in Japan, or there were in 2016, which is about a sixth of the population. And even though second-hand clothing sells for much less than new. It still accounted for 10.5% of all the retail apparel market. That's massive. Yeah, and it's younger people buying it. And 
it's very fashion oriented, you know, they're really excited by vintage, what they define as vintage, sometimes isn't what I would define as vintage, but so what, you know, they see something from another country, specifically the United States, and they say, this helps me assemble an identity for myself and a look. And I think that's really exciting. You know, it's a little bit like Americans or Australians going to Harajuku and buying kimonos, Mm. you know, that nobody in Japan wants, you know, we can see each other's stuff in different ways. And, you know, I'd like to see more of that. It's, I think it's one route to sustainability. Last one. Pakistan is one of the world's largest importers of used clothes, home to thousands of secondhand traders and millions of customers. But India actually banned the import of secondhand clothes more than a decade ago. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, they did, under pressure from new clothing manufacturers, which is usually what happens. And yet, secondhand clothes are everywhere around India. And that's a pretty common thing with the secondhand clothing trade around the world. Nigeria bans the imports of most secondhand goods. And yet Nigeria's retail economy is almost entirely secondhand. You know, Rwanda just raised the taxes very high on the import of secondhand clothes. And guess what happened? People are just smuggling it in. It's still there. The demand is there for the stuff, um, whether it be India or Pakistan or anywhere else. And governments can try and control it. But the price is right. And the other thing is, it's oftentimes more durable than the new product that's being manufactured. Well, let's have a fight. So you argue that this is potentially a good thing. There are people that can use this stuff. It's not Mm -hmm. being wasted. There's a market for it. This is industry and commerce. Here's your argument. I'm going to read it back at you. God, I'm just putting you on the spot now, aren't I? No, good, good. Critics of the globalised secondhand clothing trade allege that it undermines textile industries in developing regions, especially in Africa. It's a potent claim that has intuitive power, you say. And then you point to the work of this guy as a Canadian academic called Garth Frazier. And he's the one who is disseminating these stats that are like, Basically, all these imports of secondhand clothing are decimating Mm -hmm. these local textile markets to the tune of something like 40% Mm -hmm. of decline in Africa's apparel production. Now, you're like, okay, this is now being disseminated by academic journals, but also mainstream media and anti-globalization activists, most notably the kind of well-meaning sustainable clothing advocates who'd ordinarily cheer for mass use of secondhand over new. I'm that person. (laughs) Okay. I mean, you don't mention Andrew Brooks' clothing poverty. We know that actually these influxes of shocking bad quality rubbishy big t-shirts and crappy fast fashion is having an effect on local textiles. But you think that picture is not quite as clear as I think it is? No. I mean, I think the biggest impact on Africa, if we're just going to talk about the African continent and textiles there, I think um, the biggest impact on their clothing trade and the reason that it collapsed in the way that it did over the last 30 years has been what devastated apparel and textiles in the United States, in Europe, and Australia, East Asia. And, you know, so an we, influx of cheaply made goods from elsewhere that are new. Yeah. And if you go and talk to the clothing traders in a place like Ghana, um, new clothing traders, they will say their biggest struggle is dealing with smuggled apparel coming in from East Asia. It's a huge problem and they cannot compete Why with it. Why is it smuggled? Evade taxes is, you know, one of the big reasons, you know, and oftentimes the primary reason. So, you know, they just don't want to pay the import duties. But don't you think, I mean, you've been to Ghana. There's a passage in the book where you're talking with dealers there, um, obviously talking to people on the ground. Yeah. But then I've got a friend who runs a business called Yevu, which makes ethical clothing out of Ghana. And she says, well, you know, they're employing seamstresses in their workshop who had no work prior to them coming in the apparel sector. And she says it's because of the Matumba markets. Like they're just flooded with all this junk and... Mm. 
But what is she making now that she's able to compete? They use African prints and mm-hmm. then they make it an ethically run workshop it's for a, the Western it's, market. It's, yeah, it's a higher end product that isn't. Right. But do you not think that those influxes Oh, there's, of- no, there's no question. I mean, uh, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that secondhand doesn't compete. Mm. It certainly does. You know, wherever you have secondhand, you're going to have competition with the new goods market. I mean, you know, one of my favorite examples in the book that just gets at the nature of the market is the Goodwill on Houghton Avenue in uh, Tucson, Arizona. And it's directly across the street from a Walmart. And Kevin Cunningham, the director of retail there, he will say, look, if you've got a $5.99 pair of trousers in the Walmart and a $5.99 pair of trousers in the Goodwill, and even if that pair of trousers in the Goodwill is better quality, people are going to buy the $5.99 pair of trousers in the Walmart because they want shiny and new. And you can lower the price a little bit, but people are going to make that calculation and they're actually going to tilt to the new. Okay, but what about the colonialist kind of element of the idea of us exporting our waste? Because that's what you're, whatever you right. called us. Well, <laughs> right. What did you call us? I wanted to call Waste you. colonialism. Well, you know, no, what did you call me? Well-meaning, sustainable fashion, lefties, whatever. Right. But the point is, to me, it seems to be inherently gross and colonial and horrible to be exporting our problems that we don't want to deal with to countries we've never even been perhaps never even seen where there's a power imbalance. Mm. Well, let me let me flip the script a little bit. I've been covering the waste trade for years, and not just clothing, but uh, it's also things like plastics and metals and paper. And one thing that I've sort of decided after two decades of covering this is that these goods are not exported; they are imported. And you cannot send a container of clothing to a foreign country unless there is a buyer there. You can't just say, I've got a container of clothing shipping company. Can I put it on your ship and just take it to Ghana for me? Uh Uh-uh. There has to be a consignee. Somebody has to be there paying for the shipment. And if they are paying for the shipment and they are paying the freight, then you have to ask yourself, why are they paying for garbage? What is within that container that makes them do it? You know, why are they importing? Mm. That's how I look at it. I think there's been too much, when you talk about waste, there's too much centering on developed countries, when really we should be centering on the markets that are demanding this stuff. And there is no question that garbage gets put in these containers. But let me put it to you this way. Say I'm the exporter and you're the importer and we want a business relationship. If I start sending you frequent containers full of garbage t-shirts in them and you're thinking you're buying you've already paid for the shipping and you're paying me for these containers you know you're thinking you're buying something better are you going to keep buying from me no all right this is not in any way the same conversation but I feel like there's a link like I was just reading this shocking shocking story in National Geographic about how America basically I'm not even going to say exported but buried its nuclear waste on the Marshall Islands after all that testing. Oh, horrible, yeah. Right? But to me, that's the a story. story. I know it's the story you're talking one about. One of the worst yeah. things I've ever read, actually. We'll share yeah. a link. Maybe people don't want to know. But basically, yeah. they put all this <laughs> nuclear stuff in a very sort of basic concrete bunker, which is now beginning Eroding. to crack. Yeah, it's And eroding. then it's like, oh, well, sorry. Yeah. It's not a problem anymore. Well, we made you sign a deal. But to me, I know these are very different examples, but it's, it's still the same kind of thing. This is our problem. We don't want it. We're exporting it somewhere where you have less power and you have to deal with it. So then are we not seeing the backlash against that when the power dynamic shifts? So we've got China saying, I am now banning your 
19 types of waste from Australia, for example. I don't want your rubbish anymore. I've got my own rubbish. Deal with it yourself. Right. But, you know, the interesting thing about this is, is that uh, China's recyclers and scrap processors promptly moved to Southeast Asia. And what did they do? They then started buying from their old customers in places did like they? Australia and from the United you. States, and they brought it into Malaysia. And that's that's who and was... Vietnam, bring, right? Yeah, in Vietnam and Thailand and all across Southeast Same Asia. Companies. Yeah. And that's what it was, you know. And I, now I can't remember the statistics off the top of my head, but I actually did some reporting on this. And in Malaysia, you had over 300 unlicensed Chinese scrap plastics processors who relocated there over the last two years. Not only that, but what you, you know, the fastest growing source of textile waste, or however you want to call it, used clothing in the world is not, you know, from the United States or Australia. It's China, is it? which makes a lot of sense because they're the world's largest apparel manufacturer. If they aren't the world's largest apparel consumer right now, they will be, you know, just sheer numbers. And like every wealthy country before them, they are going to have an excess and they're going to ask themselves where to put it. I will never forget being in Tamale, Ghana. It's a town in northern Ghana one evening in a used computer shop while I was reporting this book. And a peddler came in with a bunch of T-shirts on his arm. And what these guys will do is they'll just go shop to shop because people are just hanging out at the end of the day. Anybody want to buy some used clothes? And I had seen this for a few days, but I just stopped dead in my tracks because the T-shirts he had had Chinese characters written on them. And I said, oh, my God, it's happening. And it's a really significant moment in the secondhand clothing trade for a lot of reasons. One is if you have this huge flood of Chinese textiles coming onto the market, it is going to drive down the price of used textiles across the board. And it's going to make it very, very difficult um, for charity organizations in particular to be able to monetize their donations. That's going to be a real issue. So if I'm understanding correctly what you're saying, we're perhaps guilty of oversimplifying this argument and that there's a lot of nuance in terms of where things come from, where they end up and who imports them and who actually can profit from them. Yeah, what are the motivations? I mean, again, you know, from my perspective and spending time in emerging markets for years looking at this stuff, I think the correct question to ask about any of these shipments is why was it imported? Because... It's just a matter of how global trade works. You know, Maersk or, you know, Costco or any of these big shipping companies are just not going to let you put... It's not just going to the post office and sending a letter to Santa. So could it be... Is it a bit patronizing for my... I do think we have a colonial discourse that shapes the way that we view the world and the way that our systems are set up and it needs to be broken. But do you I think agree that, with you. Let me just say I agree yeah. with you. Don't I don't want anybody to think yeah, I'm go colonialism. That's no, no, not me. But what I'm wondering is is it slightly patronizing of me to even view it in this am I still being like this unconsciously biased colonial person who's now being slightly patronizing saying that I can't give you the I guess agency to decide whether you want to import it and what you're gonna do with right. it. Right. Well and I think you just use the word that I think is the key word, which is agency, is I think the dumping narrative, this idea that we send the stuff, it denies agency to the markets that want it and are paying for it and bringing it in. As a journalist for Bloomberg and writing these two extraordinary books, you have visited and reported from many of these African countries that are often in the centre of this conversation. Mm -hmm. What are the people on the ground who are working in the industry telling you? 
They're telling me that emerging market consumers in Africa want their chance to consume. You know, incomes are growing very quickly there, and they want to go through the same cycle that they've seen every other country that's become affluent go through. And the route into that, initially at least, is secondhand, and it's not going to last. Everyone you talk to will say, you know, as soon as the income levels reach the right point, as soon as they can buy new, they're going to buy new. But also they want to buy their own things made by their own designers for their own market. I mean, we're seeing a huge upsurge in really fantastic African fashion for the African market. Right. But I think that's a higher end market. And I think the middle market right now wants new. And I don't think it cares so much. I mean, I hate to generalize like that, but just what I saw in shopping malls and, you know, I don't think they're thinking so much in terms of their local stuff. And and what, what people... You know what? It's the same everywhere. We always yeah. think made in Australia makes people excited. It doesn't. They don't right. care. They don't read the labels. And what's interesting is, you know, they, they'll tell you the secondhand markets in, in Kenya in particular, which is a huge market for secondhand clothes, people are, are queuing off of what's going on in Paris. And they're saying, you know, when can I get that in the next bale of secondhand clothes coming in? You know, they're excited by global fashion as well. All right. Let's talk a bit about what's happening in the fashion capitals, if you like. This is a fashion podcast. I know that you look at all of our stuff, not just clothes, but clothes is a big part of it. Big um, part of it. I learned from your book that the word garage sale or the phrase garage sale was first used in the 60s. Mm-hmm. But that's also when it became a little bit of a kind of hipster thing to do. Why do you think thrifting is now so hip? Well, I think it's always been hip, at least since the 1960s, hasn't it? And it's been a couple of things. One, I think people know, and it's true, if you want to assemble your own look, your own fashion, I mean, you just have so much more raw material if you're going to the garage sales, if you're going to the thrift store, if you're going to the Goodwill. Think about a thrift store in the southwest of the United States and how many different pieces of clothing they have, individual designs they have. It blows out any department store, no matter how big, in any fashion capital anywhere in the world. So if you're a fashion-oriented person, somebody who wants to assemble a unique identity, there it is. There's also a countercultural element to it, you know, which I think is interesting. And I think that's where a lot of the popularity arose in the 1960s in the United States, is people were looking for a, a way to consume but to do it outside of sort of the, the strictures of the retail economy that had been assembled at that point. And We're the there gra- again. And we have come back to this. And what's so exciting is that the online world allows people to do that in maybe not new ways. I mean, in a sense, there's only one way. But to do it more efficiently and to expand the palette beyond what it was ever before, it's marvelous. When you were a kid, you grew up basically – Adjacent to a junkyard. I grew up in a junkyard. No, I literally grew up in a junkyard. My family was in the scrap metal business, and some of my earliest memories are running around the metals warehouse, which you should not let your toddler do. But if you own the little metals warehouse, I guess you can. So that was one set of memories. And the other was my grandmother was a master thrifter. And I have very early memories at the crack of dawn being parked in front of people's houses that she knew were going to hold garage sales, and she would wait for the garage to open, and then we would immediately run out of the car to go and get the stuff. We had so much fun going to these sales. But you come from a long line of recyclers. 
I maybe approach it differently than a lot of people who come to vintage, you know, in their teens and 20s because of that family history. It, it all starts with my great-grandfather. When he came to the United States, he wanted to be in show business. He made the mistake of getting on a boat that went to Galveston, Texas. No English, no education. So he no, came from Russia in 1915. Yeah. yeah. If you went to the New World, in adverted commas, there could be opportunity there. Yeah, this was not the opportunity he wanted, though. You know, he, he left, of course, because he was going to be drafted into the Tsar's army. And he got to the United States, there was no opportunity for show business, so he did. What did he do? Was yeah, he a well, singer? Yeah, I mean, he's yeah, he was apparently a song and dance man. You know, that's what he wanted to be. And I've, he died before I was born. I look at pictures of him and have a hard time seeing it because I see the junk man. But, but he became someone who basically made an income by what he could find, and that was he junk. was a rag picker. Is what he started out in in Galveston, Texas. What even is that? That means literally picking up scraps of textiles off the street or, or buying them from people's homes, which is a very old profession and then taking them to the textile recyclers, which could mean, you know, somebody who cuts them up for stuffing, or, you know, if they're in better shape, maybe not so dirty or greasy, they can be cut up into rags. And that went from being a backpack business to a hand cart business. And what really helped him and what helped sort of several generations of peddlers like him, you know, Russian Jewish, Polish Jewish, whatever it is, was World War II. He had all that demand. And so, so what did they want? Just They wanted everything. So metal, of course. You need metal for bullets and boats and everything else. But you needed textiles, too. You needed used textiles, you know, for everything from making new uniforms to bullet stuffing because uh, they actually would have fabric go into some types of bullets. Did you father also work or your mother in yeah, the same industry? My father did, yeah. My father did. And, you know, my, it's, I mean, some of my happiest memories and some of my most comical memories are, you know, my father and my grandmother in the scrapyard together, you know, yelling across the office, mother, you know, what's the weight on that and this? And, you know, my grandmother cooking lunch for him, you know, while all this is going on. It's, it was just, it was a marvelous way to grow up in a lot of ways. You thought it was your destiny, but you shirked it off in 2002 and went to become a writer. But yeah. in a quite a aligned way, shall we say. Yeah, I mean... Who did you work for? Well, I... <laughs> what was uh, it called? Scrap Magazine, you know? <laughs> so I, I wanted to be a writer. I'd done some freelancing in, in back home, you know, and but the writing was kind of on the wall, if you will. One, um, the city of Minneapolis wanted the family scrapyard's land. So we were thinking about what are we going to do? Were you working in the business? Oh, I did. I did. I was around it. Two, I found... I don't really have the best business sense, if I'm going to be very honest with you. Three, I liked writing, and it just seemed like, you know, I should take the leap. But you did take a strange leap because you thought, I'm going to go to China and figure out where all our stuff ends up and go and investigate recycling of various things. I mean, yeah, well, at, well, in 2002, that's when you know, all of these recyclables from around the world really started flowing fast into China. And I knew about that. So I had Christmas tree lights. I mean, from anything like what, anything, what sorts of things? Well, I mean, you know, I was always interested in the odd object. Christmas tree lights is the one that became very well known because I wrote about it in Junkyard Planet. I happened to see lots of Christmas tree lights in America. American scrapyards over the years. And I used connection after connection. And I, I finally figured out, you know, sort of the hub of recycling Christmas tree lights was a town in southern China. And so I showed how those are actually recycled and, and how it had improved. It used to be the fastest way to recycle a bundle of Christmas tree lights is to dump some petrol on it, get a match and set it on fire. It all burns off. The insulation all burns off. Dioxins and everything else. And you got a pile of copper. Um, but 
you don't want that. You know, you're, you, nobody wants it. Even the people who are doing it, it's just they didn't know a better way to do it. Yeah, but it's not just they didn't know a better way to do it. There's not proper regulation. There's no OH&S. There's no safety for people, right? It was emerging China. Yeah, I mean, you know, wearing a mask, are you kidding? That's just hot. Okay, so what do they do with the Christmas tree lights to so, more safely? Yeah, so it's really wonderful. So the way you do it is, uh, uh, and I, I actually have a video of this, you take the lights, you run them through a Christmas light shredder, which is something that you build at home. And it's literally uh, spinning blades and water pouring into it because it'll get very hot. You put them in, what out comes out is basically like fingernail-sized hunks of copper, plastic, glass, brass. And water. It's this really goopy, gluey substance. You take that with a shovel and you put it onto these large tables that shake with water on them. And it's basically panning for gold. You tilt the uh, table one way and the heavy stuff, meaning the copper and the brass, goes in one direction and the plastic flows off the other end. And then you have clean copper and plastic. All right, I got you sitting across from me and I've got several questions I've always wanted to know the answer to about recycling and I'm going to ask you them. Okay, I'll do my best. <laughs> What's the difference between recycled and recyclable when we see that language used on a product? Recyclable, what does it mean? Everything is technically recyclable. I mean, there's this microphone cable in front of us and I, I can say it is recyclable and I can take it to a scrapyard and they will have a wire stripper that will strip off the insulation and then you and I can pull the copper out and we can send that to a copper mill and we can send the insulation to you know rubber recycling facility now whether that happens is another question altogether similarly you know if I have so hang on, we can get away with saying something's recyclable when the systems are not in place for that exactly. to happen. Exactly. You know, it's the same as with a plastic water bottle. I mean, in a city like Sydney, a plastic water bottle is recyclable. There are facilities that will recycle it. But say you go to a very far rural part of Australia, yes, that same bottle is recyclable, but you have to ask yourself, where? Well, you can say, well, we can drive it back to Sydney. Well, that doesn't make any sense because the carbon emissions you're going to emit doing that are going to exceed whatever you know, you'd be mitigating by recycling it in the first place. I mean, my first book was about recycling, and I love recycling, and I'm a big recycling proponent. But recycling is not the answer, and it's too often treated that way. You know, people put something in the bin and they say, ah, it's off to green heaven, you know, and the green fairies will turn it into sustainable products. There's a reason it's reduce, reuse, recycle. I mean, it should be the last one. Could we mine landfill? So it's happened in a very limited sense. It is a little bit of a backstory to it. So the way automobiles are recycled is they're shredded, just like Christmas tree lights. And for years, the 1960s and 70s, the only thing you could pull out, the technology was only there to pull out the steel. You used big magnets. But all of the mixed metals, the aluminum and copper and the brasses and the zincs, nobody knew how to, how to clean that up. So you would just throw it into a landfill. Well, by the late 80s and early 90s, the technology had been developed to take all those mixed metals and separate them. And so people went back in the 90s, late 90s and 2000s, started mining these junkyard landfills. With land a magnet? Well, yeah, well, they use different technologies. Something called an eddy current, which can separate aluminum, all kinds of different really high-tech stuff. X-rays can help identify. And they mined these old junkyard landfills for all this shredded automobile.
automobile that had been shredded 20 years ago. We haven't gotten to the point, but I think at some point we probably will, where we're actually going into the municipal landfills to pull stuff out. And that's just going to require the technology is there to do it. But what you really need then is, and it's not a nice topic, is resource scarcity so that the prices of these things rise so high that it's economically viable. So let's say 12 years ago, commodity prices, things for you know steel and aluminum they were, and copper, they were at record highs and everybody was talking about them going higher. And they didn't. They crashed because economies crashed. And so you know, predicting where, where this stuff goes is really hard. I mean, and it, it has to do with how much people tolerate. Something I'm really interested in and I think is very scary is deep sea mining because there's fantastic sources of natural resources. Oh, it, God, I've never even heard of it. I mean, we know about drilling oil in the bite, for example. Oh, this is, that'll make that look gentle. Seriously? Yeah. Where what, you, for what? Minerals? For, for uh, rare Metal. earths, copper, nickel, and you go down there and you know, and you mine the seafloor and the technology is there and the price point is almost there. And so then it's going to be a point where consumers are going to have to ask themselves, okay, What's important to you? You know, do you want to preserve that? You know, how much more are you willing to pay for your raw material so that you don't do that? Oh, dear. Well, that's a downer. I was going to ask you, are we really running out of landfill? Depends on the country. So countries like Australia and the United States have a lot of land, and landfill is really, really cheap. But if you go to Japan, there isn't that much land. And in those cases, they have run out of landfill. Britain, Britain again, another one, these smaller countries, they have run out of landfill. So what they do, though, is, and it's problematic, um, is they invest in you know incinerators, uh, presumably clean ones. And nobody actually builds better incinerators than the Japanese and the Scandinavians. Both regions having very good environmental reputations. So there's all kinds of sort of ironies packed into this. All right, we're going to end on a hopeful one. What's one of the most exciting recycling innovations you've come across recently? You know, it's it's something I didn't realize was happening. And it's not going to be a high-tech thing that you're saying, oh my gosh, it's going to save the world. But I was so moved and astounded by going into rural parts of Ghana and seeing people using 30- and 40-year-old appliances, televisions that had been imported from other countries, and that they had developed the expertise in how to repair these things and keep them going. And there's a broader lesson there. We all know the longer you use the product, the less its environmental impact. That's not necessarily an innovation, but I I think of it as, as sort of an evolution that is sort of out of sight of more developed countries, and they forget that it is possible to do this. You know, we're always talking in Europe about circular economy economies and circular economies. The thing I realized spending time in Africa is these economies already exist. You know, they're just not where you think they are. And they are not circular economies for rich white people necessarily. They are economies for people of color and, you know, who oftentimes get ignored. And we should really be taking our environmental cues from them as much, if not more, than they take their cues from us. That is the best note to end on. (laughs) Thank you. It's getting hard My parents feel that I'm defending you I tell them all that they are wrong Because I love you Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. 
you can get in touch there and I really hope you will I'd love to hear from you and you can also find links to my social media and finally if you're enjoying the show please head over to iTunes and subscribe you know what they say first in best dressed subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis so I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion the better Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you we're okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends don't feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you. Because I love you, because I love you, because I love you, because I 